Hey everyone, this podcast is brought to you by Duke University's Arete Initiative. This summer, from July 9th to the 14th, they're going to be hosting the High School Summer Seminar on Ethics, Philosophy, and Religion on Duke's campus in Durham, North Carolina. This seminar will prepare high school students with a roadmap for approaching those same subjects in college. Using texts from literature, philosophy, and theology, the seminar will examine such topics as the meaning of virtue, the substance of human nature, the question of human flourishing, the metaphysics of reality, and the nature of truth. Students will also discuss the idea's natural law, the relationship between philosophy and theology, and the relationship between science and religion. This seminar is taught by several Duke University instructors and professors and is open to current high school students entering their junior or senior years. There is no fee associated with applying or attending, and those admitted will be housed in the Duke dormitories and provided with meal cards. Students interested in applying should email John Rose at john.rose at duke.edu. That's J-O-H-N dot R-O-S-E at duke.edu. Applications will be considered on a rolling basis until April 26th, 2019. Hello and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern and I'm joined by Heidi White and Tim McIntosh. Heidi and Tim, welcome back. How's it going? Hey, it's good. Thanks, David. It's going good, David. So we are here to discuss the final chapters, the ending of John Le Carre's The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. Uh, and we will get to that in just a minute. I do want to say, I want to, I want to um, mention something here. It's a very important something. It is maybe the most important thing I'm going to talk about on this podcast all day, nay, all month, perhaps even all year. Uh, there's nothing more important than what I'm about to talk about. And this is what I'm about to talk about. It sounds important. I can't it, wait. It's I'm so on important. the edge of my seat. I, it's incredibly... <laughs> it's, it, have I mentioned that it it might be important a little? So the Close Read Podcast Network literary bracket. Oh, is this too. is important. Mm. Yes. It's coming. It's coming, people. But when? When is it coming? Yeah, right. When? Because I have... So today I, is yeah, today, Friday, March 15th. It's the Ides of the March. The Ides of March. Which means that today, on Friday, March 15th, the Ides of March, the literary bracket is dropping into the public. Yes. Whoa. So by the time this episode is up, you will it will be available, assuming it all goes well and I'm actually able to finish all the details that go into the many hours of, that go into this nonsense. Um, I mean, this very important project. Um, <laughs> you, should, you should be able to vote. So, but if you haven't been able to vote yet, make sure you go check that out. The first we'll do, we're starting with 64 heroes. That's our topic this year. Last year we did hero wins, this year it's heroes. So we're going to have 64 heroes. So the, the round of 64 will go the first, you know, into next week. And um, you'll see all the dates and the schedules on there. But we had a very difficult time narrowing this down. There are many good heroes. Um, we had a difficult time arguing about whether we were even going to define what a hero is. And ultimately we chose to not say anything about that until you have a chance to look at the bracket and get mad at us. Oh, but we did argue about, we did argue, I will say, we did argue about a couple people. Um, one of them, I've got to, I want to get your input on this because one of them is, uh, is Holden Caulfield, the, uh, uh. the, the character from Catcher in the Rye. And uh, I want to know if the two of you think Holden Caulfield belongs on such a, such a list of 64. Uh, it just all depends on how you define hero, which David, I did indeed ask you that offline, and you said that you were leaving it ambiguous. <laughs> Even so, that's too much information. Even yeah. that is too much. Come on. Well, you can edit it out so, then. So would you? But that's the only answer to that question. I need, a, I need Logan to drop a bleeper over you there. <laughs> 
So, okay, well, assuming this is ambiguous, would you put him in there? How you define it? I just feel like I need more guidance, so I'm going to defer to Tim on this. <laughs> oh, stop. I, oh, stop. <laughs> that actually is a little bit of a Tim move. I think I've done that I in don't some know. episodes. You're smarter than I am. I kind of kick it over to Heidi when I need more time to think. <laughs> Heidi, give me some insight on this. And me All you I'm have like, to do is like, give me a hit. You just got to give me the safe word, and then I will start talking to give you time to think. <laughs> Pineapple. Pineapple, Tim. <laughs> bail, bail, everyone else. <laughs> Retreat. Okay. I will actually attempt to give a very brief definition of um, what counts as a hero in literature. And I think that the integrity of the piece of literature itself defines heroism within the context of its own book. And if that is the case, I would say Holden Caulfield qualifies and I would vote for him. I don't know who he's against, but I would vote for him because that book. Holden Caulfield is arguing against phonies, right? That's his, <laughs> I mean, his chief complaint yeah. in the world. And I think in his yeah, yeah. adolescent way, he is consistently fighting against that with his life. Now, whether or not, I mean, it's an, he's an, it's an adolescent point of view, and we could argue, well, you know, he needs to wisen up a little bit. And I think that'd be fair. But I think within the, the life world of that book, he's a hero. Hmm. And the book is executed very well. So one of our longtime listeners, Jesse Brown. I was just thinking yeah. about Jesse. <laughs> she is, what did Jesse say? Well, she's she's obsessed with this book, I think. I feel like that's fair. Is that a fair Jesse is gonna Jesse will send me a Facebook message inevitably to tell me whether or not that's the inappropriate term here. But uh she um she was very, you know, she she actually knew she remembered that we did the heroines last year. And so at some point she mentioned to me that if uh, if I did not include Holden Caulfield on, on the, on the bracket, then she'd hunt down my dog or something like that. I don't remember oh, exactly wow, what it was, wow. but it was a threat. I would don't even think it was very veiled. Um, but, no. uh, but yeah, so, but Jesse's great. She actually, you know, now that you mentioned this, she, um, I don't know why I said you mentioned it now that I'm mentioning. This. <laughs> <laughs> she, uh, she lives in Pittsburgh now and she's the greater, she's like running some kind of organization up there with the greater Pittsburgh Christian schools network. So I always imagine that <laughs> I always imagine that she's like trying to defend Holden Caulfield and catcher in the Rye and JD Salinger to everybody in the Christian, the greater Pittsburgh Christian schools. network. <laughs> like that seems like that's her goal in life to me. So hey, Man, that's you, a steep hill. So that's a steep hill. Yeah. So I figure, you know, if you're, we should probably be nice to Jesse. So if you're looking for a Christian school around Pittsburgh, you can. Uh, I think they have like you can. Well, you can find her on the Close Reads page, but I think they probably have their own Facebook page. It's like PittsburghChristianSchools.net or something. So you know, be nice to Jesse. Uh, don't get too mad at her about including Holden Caulfield. Um, and uh, I think there's even. I think she even told me once there's some classical schools in the. Pittsburgh Christian Schools Network. So let's be nice to Jesse, even though I'm being mean to her on the show. And being, <laughs> no, can I say something in all <laughs> yeah, seriousness yeah, yeah. about Jesse Brown? For me, Jesse Brown is like one of the all-star close readers. Amen. You know what Slow I mean? Class. She's always got something thoughtful to say. I, I mean, there are some other people on the like that chime in on the close reads Facebook page, and I'm like, man. They're like <laughs> such a great contributor. Salt and she's of the one earth. Of them. Yep. Right. I thought you were going to say there are other people on there, but they're not as good as. She. <laughs> I know. I thought that. No, I, no, I no. Was getting ready to like really put a bleep over what you're about to say, but it was. <laughs> no, 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 no. It ended up being amazing. 
So the, the tone, I can see how the tone kind of led you guys in that direction. Cause it, like I was in the middle of that tone and I was like, this really sucks <laughs> you're going to throw somebody under the bus. Just the opposite. Well, well, if you are, if you, if you're in the Pittsburgh area and you want to, uh, you know, connect with other close readers, definitely check out Jesse, uh, check out what she's up to. And yeah, if you're involved in, I'll just, since we're talking about it, that is a pretty cool thing. The Pittsburgh Christian schools net. So you can, you can check that out as well, but that's not what we're here to actually talk about. Um, we are here to talk about John Le Carre's the spy who came in from the cold. And uh, while we were waiting for Heidi to come, because as always, she was late. I'm so um, late all the yeah. time. <laughs> and uh, we were, I was tell- talking true, to... By the way. <laughs> <laughs> I think by the tone of my voice, everyone understood. I know. <laughs> I hope people speak sarcasm. So. Yeah. I think that if they listen to this podcast, I think they're pretty well versed in it. So <laughs> we were Tim and I were talking about this book and I was mentioning how I've read it a number of times. I don't even know exactly how many, probably at least five times. And as I was reading it again, finishing up the chapters this morning, <clears throat> I was thinking about how there are moments when I was trying to remember how it all sorts itself out. Yeah, I've read it multiple times and I still don't totally recall as I'm reading it, how the mystery unravels itself. What's right. the resolution? What is their catharsis? You know, and I'm even after all these times, I'm sort of on the edge of my seat trying to remember who lives, who dies, who knows what. Like, you know, I I know the basic gist of how it ends, and I remember who you know. I remember the basics of the plot, but how it kind of all unravels and unfurls as I'm reading it every time. Unless I like, if I started reading it again tomorrow, I'd remember. But that kind of all gets swallowed up into it again, and and unraveling is remains part of the experience. And Tim mentioned, you know, if, if I've read it five times or whatever it is, and I feel that way, then people who are reading it for the first time probably really feel that way. So I got to thinking about why is it that even those of us who've read it multiple times still have that experience. And that's not necessarily uncommon in, in, Mm -hmm. you know, complex plot driven mysteries or spy novels or whatever. Um, even other Lacare books. And I was trying to figure it out. Like part of it surely is that I have a bad memory or something and that I don't recall stuff. Um, or that, you know, it could be, that could be a huge part of it, but I'm wondering if there's something that Lacare is doing in this book, something structural, um, that he's doing that has allowed that, like that, that maintains that experience, even as you read it over and over again. And I'm, did either of you notice anything like that? Heidi, I'll, I'll just because Tim's going to need more time to think. I'm going <laughs> <laughs> <That's laughs> so to like, please don't come to me first, David. I'm going to turn to you. Heidi. <laughs> the thing is, Heidi's a very, you know, when you talk, Heidi's a very responsive person, right? Like I can tell you're sitting there thoughtfully, Tim, but Heidi's the kind of person who's like saying, mm-hmm. she's very responsive. So it feels like she's got something on the tip of her tongue. So I'm just going to turn it over to Heidi and see what she thinks about this. Question. Heidi, can I can I say, Heidi, that might <laughs> yeah. be your fatal mistake if you like are still <laughs> figuring out what you're what you think about something yeah, exactly. and you're responsive. Let me counsel you away from that. Let me Stop counsel. doing that. Stop being so affirming silence. of people's thoughts. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Stop being so communicative and all that. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and engaged. Yes, that's yeah, a exactly. flaw of mine. Stop letting me know. <laughs> <you're Yeah. listening. laughs> Um, I, I do have thoughts on that. So yes, I think you're right. I, it is not that you have a bad memory. In fact, you have a very good memory, but that is. Uh, she's being true. affirming again. It's my fatal flaw. My, it's the hubris, my hubris. If they're going to write tragedy about me. That would cause my death and downfall. Um, so yes. And 
particularly with John Lee we talked a lot about how this novel transcends its genre and how it's very literary as well as being um, a genre novel. And I think that you're really onto something with what you just said about what makes it literary, that it is the, he weaves these clues and foreshadowings throughout the whole novel so that when you get to the end and this, you know, the denouement that, the, the revealing of the great mystery, it was, he was a pawn in both sides game the whole time, right? Once you get there, then um, you have that moment that you look for in every great novel, which is, I'm so surprised, but of course, this is the only way it ever could have ended. And that is like crazy great writing. And so I would recommend everybody, if, if people have time to do this, read it again immediately. Like once you know how it ends, go back and just read it either carefully or skim through it and have those light bulb moments that I've been having months after I read it for the first time and reading it again. That's just pure delight. Like, Oh, Oh, right there. There's a foreshadowing right there. There's a clue. Um, but you don't even really notice them, but subconsciously your mind takes them in. And so when you get to the end, whoa. And so I think that that kind of contributes also to what you're saying, David, about the, um, that sense of forgetting some of those details because the, the resolution is so profoundly satisfying. You can't keep track of all the details, but that's what you remember. Yeah. Hmm. Tim, have you thought long enough? Have you had enough time? I, can you guys circle back to me in about 20 minutes? <laughs> I think that to make the conclusion of the book overly simple, the reason I think it's confusing is because throughout the trial, we don't know where Lemus, we don't know, we don't know what Lemus thinks. We don't know mm. if he is acting or if he's acting, we don't know if he is acting as a, um, spy on behalf of the British government or if he is acting as authentically Lemus the individual, mm. I think that is completely gray. And we don't find out until really like very late in the book. Second to last chapter, right. third to last yes. chapter, something like that. Just, yes. I was thinking about that this time through. And for the first time, a question occurred to me. And that question is, do you think that that colors the rest of everything we everything we knew about him up to that point does that make him does it change the way you think about him either like as a spy as a person the fact that he was kind of played the whole time in some ways that he oh like does it make sense yeah does it change the way you think about him um you know as i guess as a character and and all the different elements that go into that i think it makes him more sympathetic because he's not just the mm. jaded, mm. burnt out Westerner who's lost his idealism or mm. maybe didn't have it. Mm-hmm. But now he's that. But also he's 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 a little bit of a victim and mm. his cynicism didn't protect him. Mm. I was thinking I mean, about how- I shouldn't say I don't want to use the word um victim like mm-hmm. that's a lowercase v because he gets sure. off sure um yeah but he was still duped and in that way he was a victim he was a victim of being duped i was thinking about how in the end the difference between liz and lemus was not uh-huh. that significant exactly the difference is that lemus 
sort of sort of chose to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. But the effects of what happened is, you know, they both were manipulated and used. <clears throat> and so it, it, in some ways it creates that sort of uh, Romeo and Juliet effect. I mean, if you take away, I mean, there's a, I mean, I'm using, yeah, I, I'm not offering thing that's a one-to-one correlation, but there's this sense in which these two star-crossed lovers, shall we say, uh-huh. um, could have, could have had a, peaceful, lovely life together under different circumstances. And uh-huh. they're kind of in the midst of these two warring houses um, huh. with all this ideology on either side, they are sort of um, dragged apart. And in the end, you know, in trying to um, preserve what they knew for a short time, they are doomed. And I think huh. that, that that attempt to... I think that's one of the... You know, th- this is a book that has a lot of questions about or asks a lot of questions and then asks the audience a lot of questions about pathos, I think, and catharsis because, um, Mm. Heidi, you mentioned the idea of it being satisfying Mm -hmm. and that's an interesting term there that you said, you said it was a satisfying ending. Right. And, and you say that despite the fact that it's, you know, deeply and profoundly tragic, both thematically and just, Plot wise, so I'm curious right. why you why you say that it's satisfying. I mean, do you say it's, is Romeo and Juliet satisfying to you in the ending? And what do you mean by that? Well, that's a good question. I think that that is a question of defining of terms. When I say satisfying, I, I mean that in the literary sense of mm-hmm. the resolution of the plot, not mm-hmm. necessarily the way I feel about the ending. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, that that all the threads come together in this surprising yet kind of duh moment. Like once you understand what's going on in this novel, it is like, it's, it's so brilliant, right? Like it's it, the last page when they die together, the moment in the courtroom, when he has the, that moment of revelation, understanding how it all worked. When you go back and you think about his conversation with control, the statement that we talked about at length last week, that I just think the whole lot of you are bastards, right? Like that, mm-hmm. all of that is profoundly satisfying in the sense that there's one moment that ties everything together in a way that is completely surprising and yet completely expected. Once you think about it, you're like, oh, of course it had to be that way. That's what I mean by surprising. And so in that sense, yes, I do say Romeo and Juliet is surprising. Now, so the, you mean satisfying? The, I mean satisfying, yes. Yeah, okay. Um, thank you for clarifying that. It is satisfying. Um, but... I feel so sad at the end of this novel. So I'm not happy about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this book is a textbook example of what Aristotle advocates in the Poetics. Mm-hmm. Like almost every single element. Talk for a that, while, Tim. I'm just going to listen. Yep. I'm very, this is fascinating. Single, because you're okay. So. Arist- oh gosh, it's been a while since I've read the poetics, but well, you walked into the reason one. that what's that? <laughs> you walked into this one. <laughs> I did, and now I'm like having to fish my way out. I, there's a reason why Aristotle's Poetics is still the textbook for every book on like the construction of drama. Mm. There's it's still being written. There's a there's a book by Robert McKee called Story. It's like mm-hmm. this, it's the book on writing screenplay. And Aristotle gets more mentions in that book than anything else. And he advocates for Aristotle's viewpoint, um, which is 
basically the nature of a tragic hero is there are certain things that need to happen within the plot line for it to be like ultimately satisfying. One of them is a reversal that Heidi mentioned. There has to be a moment where the kind of like thrust of the plot you think is going in one way and it's reversed. Hmm. Another one is that sense, exactly what Heidi said, of satisfaction of both being surprised at the end, but also not being surprised at the end. All of the elements are there so that when we reach the conclusion of the book, we know that's how it has to end. But yet it's still so, it's done with such craft that it's still surprising to us. Right. Well, and it has the emotional satisfaction of the catharsis of pity and fear that he talks about also. Yeah. That you And that's so clear in this novel, that sense of, uh, yeah, that, that moment when they're going over the wall and he chooses to go down with her because you know why? The whole lot of you are bastards. Right? Yeah. Like that is so, that is a catharsis. Mm. Yeah, that's, um, <clears throat> it's rare, I think, that the final, the final moment of a book is, the def- is when the defining decision is made. Right. Like, you know, there's a, a lot of times you have that sort of, <clears throat> you have your, your climax and, and then you sort of have all this epilogue stuff, right? Uh, the sort of happily lived, lived happily ever after or didn't. Like what happened after that? That's, that's common, right? And even if, even if you don't have that, you rarely have the, the decision, the f- defining decision of the whole book is the last sentence. Right. Yeah. And, yep. and you're right. Like he has the choice to, to turn towards Smiley um, or he, and then the rest of, you know, the people or, or he has the, the opportunity or he has the choice to go down to her, even though he knows what that means. And right. he uses, yeah. I mean, does that, so is, and ultimately is this meant to be a sort of a romantic book? Is that what, is that what you think, Heidi? I, mean, I don't in know. A, in a, you know, not in a, I don't know. I think that that's a, that is an unanswered question for me. Does he does he love Liz or is he so disillusioned at this point that he can't let another innocent person die because of him? I'm not I'm not sure. I'm curious what y'all think. Okay, I would can I ask a question mm-hmm. that I was wanting to ask before the show and I think it will illuminate where we are with this with this dilemma let's imagine lemus and liz escape over the wall um they tidy up all the kind of like bureaucratic paperwork you know back with uh the circus and lemus and liz get together they get married they move to switzerland okay and they have a quote normal life my question is who becomes more like the other? Does will Lemus become more like Liz, or will Liz become more like Lemus in that relationship? Hmm. hmm. I'm going to let David answer this. Actually, <laughs> are you buying time, Heidi? <laughs> <laughs> I'm okay with. I, weirdly, when I'm not asking the question and being the host, I uh, am okay with silence. Um, that's a great. That's a great question, and I've never thought about that before. Oh man. Um, well, I think 
if, if you're just pure, if you're, ta- it depends on what the power, the most powerful force is. Is the most powerful force? Um, is 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 the cynicism that has become embedded so deeply into Lemus more powerful powerful than the force of personality that Liz still has? That seems to be the question. That's a great way of saying. That's how that. you have to think about it. I, I feel yeah. Like. Because if her force of personality is strong enough, or his, you know, deeply embedded cynicism is, you know, not not so deeply embedded, then she, he might become like her, and it might they might have a chance to be happy. But if his cynicism overwhelms her ideology um, and the force of personality that has made her uh, believe in that ideology and stick to it, and the and the force of personality um, that made her fall in love with him so easily then right. if, you know if his cynicism wins out then then it's going to be a tragic story um you know they're going to be unhappy right um i think and i wonder if perhaps that's the best solution is the solution that happened i mean i'm yeah. saying that you know yeah you know th- neither one i mean it's not really the best solution obviously <laughs> but dramatically i suppose um well, and the reason I was buying time on that question is because in some ways, I'm not sure I even accept the premise of the question that they would be together on the other side of the wall. Mm. So because I, what do you think, what do you think would happen? I don't know. I mean, that's a, I, I'm not. I'm not sure that they were really in love, either of them. She's sweet as sugar, right? She's just an innocent. Like that is, that's the role I see her play in the novel is the representation of the innocence of the ordinary person and not necessarily the love of Lemus's life. So I'm not saying they couldn't, truly learn to love each other but i i don't know if i see that their story is a love story do do you think that she 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 claims you know you they let me love you you let me love you and so forth right do you think that she did love him i mean do you think she's she's or or, or, right or was it something else well i think that she i think she loved him but she didn't know him right like this that whole conversation in the car that they have when they are trying to deal with both both of them are trying to deal with their profound disillusionment in 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 their in their different ways that that's the first time liz ever sees him as who he really is or you could also make the case that that's completely wrong, Heidi. She saw him before, and that was uh, she's because because she didn't know he was a spy. She saw the real him in the beginning when they were first lovers. Hmm. So yeah, it's again, when the, he doesn't yeah. have the mask on. Yes, exactly. And so I think there's so much ambiguity in their relationship. It isn't that I think they couldn't ever be in love, but. That for something that traumatic is so hard to overcome. Like if they had made it to the other side of the wall, what would have happened? That's a whole different novel, right? So, um, but to David's point, I think they had to die in the, in the world of the story. 
in order for that for either of them to, either of them to come in from the cold. They because they would have they it was just never possible if they'd continued on. Is what you're saying? Yeah. Well, and, and to Tim's point about the dramatic, you know, if we're looking at it not as a representation of you know art imitates life, but art is art as art, like in the world of the story. The only way for this story to end is for both of them to die. The other option is for him to go over the wall and to rejoin the bastards and leave her there as a death, yeah. death of innocence, right? And that didn't happen. So there is a statement of hope in this novel. There is, I think it ends in a hopeful way of him, of him saying, like, I'm, I would rather die than continue to participate in a system that is just as evil as our enemy. Hmm. Can I put a different, what if he went over, what if he went back to Liz, not just as um, a refusal to participate in the dark system, which is kind of like a rejection of evil, but what if he went back to Liz as a choice for the good? Like, I think part of his attraction to Liz is that she is sweet and she is innocent and she's also idealistic. Right. And I think that part of the reason that Lemus is so cynical is because I think back in the day, Heidi, you said something similar in the previous podcast. I think back in the day, he was an idealist and now he's a cynic because that's what every cynic is. It's, every cynic is an idealist with a broken heart. That's right. And I think he recognizes something about the way that he used to be in Liz. And I think it's part of the reason that I think that they were genuinely in love. Now, that being said, like if they moved to a chalet in Switzerland together, there would be this <laughs> I'm like playing the marriage counselor now. I think there could be this kind of brutal uh unmasking that both of them would have to go through in which they would find out, oh, you're not this kind of like imagined person that I thought you were. Liz right. is not just the idealist. Lemus is not just the hardened cynic. You know, he's also a hardened cynic and he's probably fighting alcoholism. You know, there's nothing terribly romantic about that. But right. I kind of think if they did end up in my imagined Swiss chalet, that they could make it if they make it past the first year. Like if they actually committed to actually loving the other person instead of loving this kind of idealed um, representation of each other that I, you know, which is the reason they get together in the first place. I think they kind of project this ideal on each other, but if they move to the Swiss chalet and they can like survive that first year together and actually know each other, man, I think dare I say it happily ever after. Yeah, maybe. Hmm. Um, Do we need to go back and re-record the um, Best Romantic Books podcast? (laughs) 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 Um, I want to talk about some structural things. Before we do quickly, I want to say a word from uh, a new friend of mine. Because you may have heard of a podcast called History of Vikings. It's by a a kid named Noah Tetzner. He is a fairly recent homeschool grad and he has this really popular podcast called History of Vikings, which some of you may have listened to. And uh, he has a new podcast uh, called Lessons from a Homeschooler. 
It's a podcast that explores the lives and interests of homeschooling students, parents, and families all over the world. So if you want to check this out, you can join host and homeschooling graduate. He is a graduate of homeschooling, Noah Tetzner, and learning about topics such as history, education, and literature from acclaimed speakers within the homeschooling world. I know Andrew Pudua has been on there. Um, he interviewed me for it at one point. I don't know when that's going to run. If it, Maybe it already has run, actually. Um, but you should check this podcast out. It's pretty cool. Um, if you are a homeschooling high schooler or a homeschooling student or homeschooling family, it's a cool podcast. I mean, this kid knows his stuff. He really knows how to do a podcast. Um, he's got that. You know, he's got an NPR future, is my guess, something something like that. Although he might just make a lot of money doing podcasts, but his History of Vikings podcast is really cool. And this one's a, a cool uh, thing that he's working on. So check that out. So wherever you listen to podcasts, check out Lessons from a Homeschooler uh, by Noah Tetzner. It's on iTunes and Stitcher and on the website, uh, on his website. You can Google it. Um, there's a lot of, lot of uh, great content interviews on that podcast if you are interested in that. So I just wanted to drop a little plug for that in here before we continue. Um, okay, let's talk a little bit about some structural things here. Because I asked, um, we read chapter, what was that, 13 last week. We mm -hmm. really dove into that chapter. And it was right in the middle of the book. And one of the things that I asked was about the payoff, the catharsis of that conversation. And now that we've read the whole book, I'd like to come back to that question. Mm -hmm. I, you've referenced that conversation in the, in the episode last week a couple times already. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the questions that are raised in that chapter and that we talked about last week get some payoff by the end of the book? Um, I actually think that structurally, this is a really, really interesting book. And I think there's a lot mm -hmm. going on here. So I'd like to talk about that. And, the, and, in, and that, that's the first way I want to do that is I want to talk about uh, that particular conversation, which being in the middle uh, has a lot of structural implications. So what's the payoff of that conversation? Sure. So I really could hardly contain myself this entire week thinking about that <laughs> in light of the end of the novel and how we couldn't talk about it at all last week. That was, I, I just, I think we all deserve a big hand for <laughs> not doing any spoilers in light of that conversation <laughs> because you're absolutely right. It's extremely significant uh, and it does have payoff, but it has tragic payoff. It's a tragically ironic conversation. By the end of the novel, we see that Fiedler is, uh, in spite of all of his idealism, in spite of thinking he's helping to build a new world, he is still just lives and dies as a Jew in the eyes and at the mercy of the Nazis. That's that's how it ends for him. Um, and we also see with Lemus that he was absolutely right when he when Fiedler asked him, what is your philosophy? He replied, I just think the whole lot of you are bastards. And that ends up being exactly how he lives and dies as well. Um, and so I think that there's so much payoff for that conversation. And that's a lot of what I was referring to with the foreshadowing, the threads of the plot, and then also the philosophical statement that Le Carre is making all come back to that conversation in the center of the novel and then uh, have this tragic irony that ends so much differently than what we would want for either of them and definitely for Moont. And for us and on our, well, I guess it's not us. It's, it's the British, um, the West, you know, who claims to be the good guys. This is how it ends for them too in the novel. Hmm. I have thought about the conclusion of the novel 
being Lemus and Liz together. I'm going back to that relationship. The, The middle part that we discussed last week, which is this kind of battle of ideologies, and we see both ideologies as corrupt. Um, and we kind of see these, these 10 soldiers, they could fight on this side or they could fight on that side of this ideological battle. And they're kind of doing the same thing. They have different ideas behind their actions. They have different um, political philosophies behind their actions, but their actions are the same. And their actions are dishonest, devious, and murderous. And so I have read, going through this book the second time, I read Lemus's decision at the top of the wall as a choice to opt out of both of those corrupt systems yes. and a choice to opt into like this fundamental, empathetic relationship of one person loving another person. Huh. Which, in real life, we don't live independent of political systems as much as like we would love to sometimes. We just don't. We cannot do that. We're well, all, every person in the world is born into some sort of a political system. And you can't just opt out for empathy, right? Right. That's just That's sort of like this false romantic choice. Here. You're exactly right. That's what he's saying. If you want to opt out, you're, you die. You're doomed. But in, in, a, in a way, it, to me, it's like Lemus... I think I'm, I might be, I think I'm stretching the text a little bit because it doesn't say this, but I wonder if Lemus is making this kind of final choice to return, not return, to turn to a different ideal, which is Mm -hmm. to love Liz. Well, I, uh, I've always wondered if Le Carre purposefully had, um, Lemus turned toward the light at the end. Yeah. Because the light's coming from behind him on the the German side of the wall. And mm. oh wow, gone, David. And he turns back to the light and climbs down off the wall to her. So I I you know, it might just be that that's a function of necessity, but if it's not on purpose, it's certainly poetic. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. a little on the nose in some ways, but it's also right there, you know, it's it's um it's not on the nose in a way that feels like it couldn't it's not necessary, right? Right. But it makes a very strong point of this. Um, let's see if I can find that. It's all throughout this last suddenly, chapter. Suddenly the, the whole the world seemed to break into flame from everywhere, from above and beside them. Massive lights converged, bursting upon them with savage accuracy. Lemus was blinded. His head, he turned his head away, wrenching wildly at Liz's arm. So he turns towards the German side. The light's on him from behind, blinding him. He turns towards Smiley. And then, um, because of the light and being so bright, wrenching wildly at Liz's arm. Now she was swinging free. He thought she had slipped and he called frantically, still drawing her upwards. So he's trying to pull her, you know, just all the physicality of this is really interesting. Uh-huh. You can see nothing, only a mad confusion of color dancing in his eyes. So it's like the light is shining there and it's blinding him and it's confusing and it's, you know, disorienting. Um, and then they fire and she gets shot and he turns and uh, he can jump to the Western side, but instead he jumps to the Eastern side towards the light. He shields his eyes. Um, 
from the light and then he jumps towards it. Um, so, you know, it, it may, maybe it's a little on the nose. Maybe it's not even really what he meant, but it's, you know, there, as you said, there's a lot of light imagery in the, in the, ch- in the section. I think it has to be what he meant. I think there's, I kind of do mean, too. If he didn't mean that, he's, he's not that good. Like that's like, this is so, this whole chapter is so, every word matters. Even the last line, or excuse me, the second to last sentence of chapter 25 is pull up. I'm really sorry about all of the swearing. It's not mine. It is like craze. Pull up the ladder, you bastard. Right? Like this, this idea of he's, all of he knows that that's that that's who they all are on both sides, and he's yeah. about to do something about it. He's coming in from the cold. I agree with Tim completely, except I don't know if it's true love for Liz, as you said, Tim, or if it's just a decision to ally himself with the ordinary man or the ordinary person, the ordinary ordinary humanity. But I'd like to believe it's true love. I hope that's true. And, and why, when I think about the decision at the top of the wall that he makes, I don't think about him uniting himself with the ordinary person. Because why, it's so why? specific. Yeah, it's a particular person. And I think that matters a lot. The idea yeah. of not just loving humanity, but of loving Tim and David, right? That's, yeah. that's the Christian life, not just social justice, but love. Yeah. So that it's not it's not the system that's going to save us. It's individual love laying down its life for another. That mm. is how this story ends. It really is a beautiful resolution. And in the world of the story, this is the right ending. This is the most redemptive ending. But it also is an ending that points to the fact of his entire philosophy again that they're all the bad guys. Yeah. Everybody yeah. that he thought that he everybody they're all. The system is bad on both sides. Mm. And the only yeah. way to be redeemed is to lay your life down for another human particular person. So, you know, there's the section we talked about last week where he has this long philosophical conversation about Fiedler, about what motivates people, right? Mm-hmm. And, and he says, what is your philosophy? And Lima says, oh, for Christ's sake, he, he snaps. That's pretty mm-hmm. much all he says. And, so then in the, and then there's the conversation with... Um, with Liz and there's all these callbacks to that conversation. In fact, I think in four or five different instances in that conversation, either Liz or Lemus begins their re- response to the other person by saying, Oh God, or Christ almighty or something. Right. Like that. So there are these constant references. I think there's at least seven, seven references to God in like two pages in their conversation right. about why all this is happening. And so I think, I think that is complicated i think there's a lot yes. going on there um because I, to my knowledge i don't think i don't know that lecar is a, a christian i think he might be an atheist but but i i think he i think one of the things that he's getting at here is i think he's a cynic about that world mm-hmm. but i don't think he's a nihilist if that makes no, sense like, i think you not. can be a cynic you know people yeah. accuse this book of nihilism being dark but i think Heidi, you're right that he's He's cynical about the world, but the ending is ultimately hopeful, and thus he's not a nihilist. You right. Know, this is not Kafka, right? Like this is not Kafka writes a spy novel or Camus writes a spy novel. Right. Uh, you know, this is <laughs> someone exactly. who, who. Uh, although I wouldn't, I would have read that. This is more like to me. I think this is why uh, his books appealed to the likes of Graham Greene. Um, right. Maybe there's a different <laughs> sort of central worldview at work behind. You know, when they're writing on the page. 
but I think that there's, you know, you can be cynical about the work and cynical about the, the uh, ideologies that turn into violence, you know, the way the ideologies work themselves out, um, but still not be a nihilist. Right. Well, I think, I'm, go ahead, Tim. I think if Lemus had not gone back for Liz, had returned to the circus, had filled out the paperwork, and lived in California on a healthy pension while drinking expensive wine, um, I think that I would accuse this book of nihilism. Hmm. Yeah. But the fact that he went back over and died, I think, rebukes yep. the charge of nihilism. I to your completely point, agree, agree with that completely. Well, and I'm really, really glad that David brought up the, the church imagery and or not really imagery or that references all the illusions in this book um there it's over and over again with starting in chapter 20 with the tribunal and some before that but starting in chapter 20 it is just relentless like you said david it's a little on the nose but in a way that is appropriate for the literary development of this theme so late in the novel um he start he compares let's see and this is on page 167 on uh, beginning of chapter 20 um on either side, their chairs a little forward of the table, turned inward to face one another, sat two men. One was middle-aged, 60 perhaps, in a black suit and a gray tie, the kind of suit they wear in church in German country district, districts. Okay, then over here again on, one, on page 189, Cardin stood again and smiled his kindly church warden smile. Mm-hmm. Like over there, they're compared to saints, they're compared to monks. Um, and so... You know, there's a lot of ways to interpret that. It could be this idea that communism and this idealistic communist structure has taken the place of church in in Uh the German ethos, right? And what are the implications of that? Um, And then also that statement that you brought, I'm so glad you said that because I underlined it like 50 times with big stars by it when, when Lemus over and over again curses with Christ's name curses in the name of the Lord. Like he means that it's a curse, but if you read it, it's actually just literally true. Right. When he says for Christ's sake, Mm -hmm. that is the actual answer to the question. What was the question? Do you still have it in front of you? I can't remember the phrasing of it. Something about, it's like some kind of philosophical question that Lemus is trying to dismiss, but he answers it with Christ's name, which is the actual answer. Right? Oh, I want to he hear, means I want to hear it that. as a curse. Let me see. And David, he does that in his conversation with control as well. Same kind of thing. I did not pick up on that at all. I did not. I was not a good close reader. <laughs> well, it's so subtle. And I think that that's what, um, you know, and, and it's so subtle that if he really is, if, if Le Carre really is an atheist, which I think that there's, I, I love what you said about how every cynic is an idealist with a broken heart. I think that's true for this author. Like he's trying to figure this out. Like it's mm. so confusing to him that these systems are so corrupt in equal ways and, and, and that you have to capitulate in order to participate, you know, mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. scary and frightening for someone who doesn't believe in God. Mm-hmm. And really for anybody, but that's, yeah, I, I think that that, 
the question of God and religion is huge in this novel, but it's subtle. Yeah. Well, I think the right, I mean, what do you mean by subtle? I don't mean to be, I'm not being trying to be combative, but I, I mean, I don't, I don't, I mean, he's he not, yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. I think I mean that you could miss it if you, I mean, then what do I mean by that? The reason he's I asked, not making a point, maybe, or he's not. I think because I know he's not a Christian, that's why I would say it's subtle. The reason I ask is because maybe it feels like more like exactly how to interpret it. Right. He's not totally clear on how to interpret it, but there's so many illusions that they don't seem, it doesn't seem subtle. You're exactly right. It's not subtle. I take it it back. He kind of hits us over the head with it, but exactly how to interpret that is not necessarily obvious, which makes it complex and subtle at the same, and, and lacking subtlety at the same time. Right. Um, maybe subtleties. Maybe maybe that's just the wrong term to kind of dance around. You know. <laughs> yeah. No. You're right. I take it back. It's not subtle, but it is ambiguous. That's yeah. There, there you go. I want to argue that. I mean, we could sort of do a hermeneutical study here. Now it's like, are <laughs> when Lemus says Christ, is it um, just his normal way of speaking, or is that a signal? that we should pay attention to. And I wonder if, I think I did not pay such close attention to those outbursts as having significance because I think that's the same way that he um, spoke early in the book when I thought it was just his way of speaking. Right. I think that it is his way of speaking. But you're saying it's, it's more than... It's more than just that because of the nature of the book, the structure of the book, and the questions that precede those outbursts late in the book. Yeah, I think so. I think because he's, you know, if you're an author crafting a novel that's so intentional, how every little word is so intentional in what and how where you put it and where you place it. Um so it is Lemus's way of speaking. He's curse he curses all the time he in the name of God. But if you just read it, let's say he was a devout man and then control I'm still trying to find it that um well, control asks him yeah, something. Like he, if he was a devout man and he asked him that question and he responded with for Christ's sake, that would be the truth. It would be for Christ's sake. Can, right? Can so we, can we look at I want to kind of Look at us, look in chapter 25 to the yeah. wall. There's a section that be, it's where it's the conversation between Liz and Lemus. And I think it in many ways is the, the follow up or the culmination, certainly a callback to the conversation between Fiedler and uh-huh. that we read last week between Fiedler and Lemus. And there's that part where, where Fiedler says to him back in chapter 13, you know, what's the philosophy that drives you? And there's this part here where Liz say, we're talking about how, you know, Lemus tells her they got used. But then she says, Essentially, she asks the same question that the Fiedler does. She says, how can you turn the world upside down? Mm-hmm. Do you see that part there? Uh, what page are you on? Well, in my book, it's 216. I think me yep. and Tim. Um, it's a couple pages into chapter 25. And uh, it just as she asks, how can you turn the world upside down? Liz shouted suddenly. Um, yes. Uh-huh. Fiedler is kind and decent. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So then 
he says, I think we should read this next page or so. So, um, do you, Tim, do you have, do you have that? Do you find it? You said a couple pages into 25. Yeah. It says, he, she just asked, how can you, how can you turn the world upside down? He's, he's just told her, I can't see it in black and white. Basically we're talking about conscience and all that. And then she essentially asks him that question. I'll read for a second. And then if you find it, you can, we can Great. jump in. So she, he's her response. His response is there's only one law in this game. Munt is their man. He gives them what they need. That's easy enough to understand, isn't it? Leninism, the expediency of temporary alliances. What do you think spies are? Here's an here's the going back to that illusion, Heidi. Priests, yeah. saints, martyrs. They're yes. a squalid procession of vain fools, traitors too, yes. Pansies, sadists, drunkards, people who play cowboys and Indians to brighten their rotten lives. Do you think they sit like monks in London balancing the rights and wrongs? I'd have killed months if I could. I hate his guts, but not now. It so happens that they need him. They need him so that the great moronic mass that you admire can sleep soundly in their beds at night. They need him for the safety of ordinary, crummy people like you and me. But what about Fiedler? Don't you feel anything for him? This is a war. It's graphic and unpleasant because it's fought on a tiny scale, at close range. Fought with a wastage of innocent life sometimes, I admit. But it's nothing, nothing at all besides other wars, the last or the next. And here's the first in a series of, you know, mm-hmm. these references. She says... Oh God, you don't understand. You don't want to. You're trying to persuade yourself. It's far more terrible what they're doing to find the humanity in people, in me and whoever else they use, to turn it like a weapon in their hands and use it to hurt and kill. Christ Almighty, Lemus cried. What else have men done since the world began? I don't believe in anything. Don't you see? Not, not even destruction or anarchy. I'm sick, sick of killing, but I don't see what else they can do. They don't proselytize. So that is, there's the reference. You know, uh-huh. they're talking about you know, what you believe in. They don't stand in pulpits or on party platforms and tell us to fight for peace or for God or whatever it is. They're the poor sobs who try to keep the preachers from blowing each other sky high. You're wrong, Liz declared hopelessly. They're more wicked than all of us. Because I made love to you when you thought I was a tramp, Lemus asked savagely. Because of their contempt, Lemus replied. Contempt for what is real and good. Contempt for love. Contempt for... Yes, Lemus agreed. That is the price they pay to despise God and Karl Marx in the same sentence, <laughs> if, that, if that is what you mean. Um, and then in a minute, a minute ago, a minute ahead, she says, you're all the same, Alec. And he says, oh, Liz, he says desperately, for God's sake, believe me. Um, and it seems to me like this little section here is the culmination or the cathartic callback to the earlier conversation between First, there's three conversations, I think, in this book. The key conversations. There's the one that you keep referencing, Heidi, about between control and Lemus. Uh-huh. Yeah. When they're trying to set up a plan, you know, basically. Then there is, in the midst of the plan, there's the, the uh, questioning where Fiedler uh-huh. and... Chapter Fiedler 13. Are, yeah, mm-hmm. Yep. Chat where Fiedler and Lemus are talking. And then here's the, it's all over. This is, you're the, you know, the, the unraveling of everything between Liz and Lemus. And they all ultimately come back to this question of God, of why, why do you do the things that we do? And hovering underneath that, you know, what is the motivation? And hovering, hovering under the, the motivation is this constant refrain of essentially, oh God. You know, these, these words, yeah. these, these Christ Almighty with the exclamation points. These things that, can be read as curses or prayers at the same time. And yes. I, I think that there's ambiguity in that, but there's also like deep 
po- deep poetic irony, literary irony in that as well. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a, the really, really, really at the heart of this novel. And it's, well, a, and it's what makes it human, mm-hmm. not just a spy novel, right? That's part of what makes it transcendent genre, exactly what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Go on. <laughs> Were you going to say something else? <laughs> no, I think I wasn't really. That, that uh, what you're bringing up, that the inner tearing away at the fabric of who these people are that it takes to participate in this system is, and they're always trying to make sense of it, but they always have to be completely alone. And anytime they connect, they can't keep it. It really is such a metaphor for the ordinary human life, just on this scale that is hard for any of us to fathom, right? So I think what you're saying is really profound and you're right. It's not at all subtle. It's just right there. Um, and worth a reread again, as we keep talking about, as you're, you know, we kind of get, you kind of get through these novels and you want to figure out what the resolution, you want to get to the end and find out what happens. But if you go through and savor it slowly, again, you see these contemplations on what it means to be human that are deeply moving and and at the center of that is this question of what is the relationship between man and God? Yes. Is your and and that's why I think he puts Karl Marx and God in the same sentence. Because mm-hmm. whether you're the Westerner who is sort of buying into, you know, or at least you know, as Fiedler puts it, this sort of Western Christian nation idea that, that is referenced in chapter thirteen, or whether you're Liz, whose God is Karl Marx and Leninism, at the core of it is this question of you, you know which. What does it mean to have to ostensibly name one of those gods as worth following? You know, and w- what does it take to preserve your faith in that God? Whether that God is the you know sort of traditional Christian nation God, such as it is, or whether it's God of communism, you know, whether right. it's Karl Marx. And I think that ultimately, the, I'm so fascinated by this line where. He, he says, oh, Liz, for God's sake, believe me, I hate it all. I hate it all. I'm tired. It's the world. It's mankind that's God mad. We're mm-hmm. a tiny price to pay, but everywhere the same, pe- the same people cheated and misled whose whole lives are thrown away, people shot and so forth. And then he says, and you, your party, God knows it was built on the bodies of ordinary people. You've never seen men die as I have, Liz. Like, he's not wrong that both sides are doing... Are doing um, just crazy evil things. But this line like, of God knows uh-huh. is so fascinating to me because it seems like the book is suggesting that underneath it all, underneath all that evil, underneath all that sickness, the only one who can tie things together is God. Like God knows what the resolution can be. And so in some ways, I don't think, I don't know that, I, well, I don't, th- I don't think Le Carre would say this is a prayer, but this is one of those books that like so many books in the 20th century, I think is written at a time of such great upheaval following such chaos that it can't help but ultimately by the, ex- the exploration and, and um, by the exploration of the themes that it presents ultimately becomes a prayer for, for the state of mankind. And I think that in that way, it belongs in that list of books like uh, Brad's Head Revisited or uh-huh. um, uh, many of Graham Greene's novels. And you know, I, I, that's why I think that it's been so beloved. And I think that you know, that's why it transcends the genre. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Tim, you've been quiet. Are you muted? Are you just are you talking, but it's muted and we can't hear you? <laughs> no, I'm here. <laughs> I, honestly, I just did not 
see this in the book. And so I'm listening to you guys reason about it. And I'm like, oh my well, gosh. they've read it more than you They're too, right. to be fair. I don't think so though. I, I think you're, we've said so many times on this podcast, um, the authors that we read are too intelligent to sort of stumble into a glorious mistake like this. Now, uh-huh. like whether we're reading too much into it, that can be debated. But no, I think, I think you guys are right. I think. Uh, well, let me clarify these one thing. Exclamations. These, these, uh, is deatific a word? Let's call it a word. These deatific ex, ex, exclamations are very poignantly placed. They can't just be um, Lemus's and Liz's way of speaking. Surely there are that, but it seems like there are more. Mm. <laughs> Well, I, you know, I want to clarify. I think there's two things going on here. I think on the one hand, there is just that the fact that it, it's, it can't help but be sort of a prayer for help, a cry for help to some higher power because it's written. It's because it's a great piece of literature written in this tradition in the 20th century, following you know in the wake of such terror, basically. So I think in some ways it's whether he intended it or not. And then on the other hand, I think there is a purposeful sort of exploration of these themes. So I think both things are happening at the same time. I don't know that he is, I mean, I, do, I don't believe that he is, you know, being Graham Greene and trying to specifically offer up a Christian narrative from a Christian perspective. Right. But I think that he is asking questions that so many, that the rest, that everyone, that everyone was asking in the midst of the Cold War and post-World mm-hmm. War II and post-World War One and post, you know, what you know he's writing this book in an age when communism is communism was far a far greater danger to the world than nazism was right you know than just in pure and purely in terms of the number of people that were that were killed so i think that there's so much terror in the world that you can't help if you if you reckon if you're trying to reckon with that seriously it can't help but essentially be a prayer in the end to in search of some higher power or else it falls into pure nihilism right i mean can it be it has to be one of the two right Am I yeah. crazy to say that? No, you're not crazy. I think that that's exactly how it has to become. And because of their profession and because of what they're asked to do, there, there are only a couple of ways to deal with that extreme kind of life, right? And that's um, either nihilism or faith in something beyond yourself or just pure cynicism. And Lemus wants to be a pure cynic, but he is not because he is a human being. So that's that's where we get to, I think, in the end. I agree. Hmm. Well, we should probably start wrapping this up. We're going to answer questions next week. So make sure you post your questions on the Facebook page and the thread there. But let's turn over to y'all's uh, final final thoughts on this novel before we turn to other people's questions. Um, how do I let you go first and then we'll give Tim the final word? Well, I I want to just add on to the thought we already had about um, the question of I did find there there well now I lost it again my book fell I'm sad <laughs> <laughs> like it fell on the floor like I dropped it and then I lost my place and now I have my final thought um, that was a chain of events that that just took place on the air. Just one thing yeah. led to another. Yeah. So I'm going to turn it back over to you, Tim. What is your final <laughs> thought? <laughs> I tried to give you the final thought, Tim. I know. Thanks. This is going to sound like a 
swerve. But it, what I've been thinking about during the last few minutes when you guys have been talking is so many of these books that we have read, like you just said, David, like Bride's Head Revisited, like Power um, the, the Power Glory. and the Glory, are we watch um, the, we watch Christendom kind of being pulled away from the West, you know? Mm-hmm. And there's this mourning and sadness and this sense of loss mm-hmm. in, among these authors. And maybe even in this book, there's, I don't know about a sense of loss, but there's some profound change at least has taken place. And I've just kind of been thinking to myself, what is a mm-hmm. new Christian novel look like after the kind of train of Christendom has been pulled off the West? Huh. Um, I would love to know the answer to that question. I have a lot of thoughts, but they're all, none of them are really do you think that such, through. I mean, do you think that that's, those in the books are being written now? Like, you th- can you think of some, or you just think that what's it going to look like as this, exp- that continues it's to It's more, what is it going to look like? Because I'm sure they're being written. I'm sure that, they, I, no, let me correct that. I hope they are being written. I don't know what they are. Um, I have a theory they're going to, well... What? <laughs> That's all. we could do. Maybe we should set aside a podcast specifically to talk about this. I have a theory that they're going to come out of um uh the east and huh. I, and perhaps places like even South America um where the the concept, well, I I mean I'm going to get myself into trouble because I'm not going to be able to expand on this enough. But I think in countries like Russia, for example, um parts of you know Eastern Europe. Um, I think, you know, you might see them in coming out of Asia and then perhaps even in, um, parts of South America where I think that people of faith have had to reckon with that unmooring for so long already. And Uh that faith has had to grow and be established in countries where it was not necessarily uh, privileged. So yeah. I think those voices are initially perhaps going to come from places like that. Whereas here you can sort of be, you know, we haven't had to reckon with that in the same way. And so our literature might have a bit of uh might have to work through some malaise <laughs> before it can, like, I think we might have to deal with, you know, I think our voices are going to be uh, Walker Percy uh, huh. for a lot longer until that has worked itself out somehow or until things really go off the deep end. So, I mean, I think, I think you know. I think that that kind of literature you're talking about might might have to come from those those sorts of traditions, those sorts of places first. That makes a lot of sense, David. That's a really that's a compelling answer. I, I think what or I maybe, or at least maybe that's where they're being written now. You know? Yeah, if, if yeah, yeah. Being now. yeah. It might be fun to do a whole podcast on this because it's it's kind of like the moment that we are in right now, 2019. There, we no longer kind of have the luxury of nostalgia, if that makes any sort of sense. I think mm-hmm. that Graham Greene at all still had the luxury of nostalgia. They could look back and say, oh, there are things that are being lost when Christendom's being pulled away. And we can, and they can mourn for those things. Um, but I, I just have this kind of intuitional sense that, that, 
Um, now that's in 2019, that sort of nostalgia would now just read as kind of what is the right word? Naivete. Huh. Whether it is, it truly is naivete or not, that's an entirely different question. But I think as a novel, I I would be afraid if I was trying to write that novel, a novel of nostalgia like Brideshead, that it would be read as naivete. But this is a whole big subject. I repent of asking such a big <laughs> question so late in the podcast. Heidi, <laughs> do you want to turn to your final thoughts as we wrap up? Um. Well, did you find did your book did you find your place? <laughs> well, no, I got interested in this conversation, and um, yes, I do she think that the shit right. I just dropped the book figuratively as well as literally. Um, <laughs> that this is a very big conversation, and I think part of what I hear you saying, David, or or to maybe just add on to that to what you're saying is that cultures that you're describing have a very uh, deep understanding of suffering individually and collectively within their cultures, which is something that the West does not have uh, and resists very much so. Like just this idea that that the suffering of uh, a group of people is immoral in the and and something to be eradicated in the eyes of the West, whereas there are and and there, there, there's something really really good about that. Um, we don't want anybody to suffer, but the cultures that you're describing have to wrestle with that in a lot of ways, and and that wrestling with suffering give it gives birth to profoundly good art because that's the human question. That's the human question. Mm. What do I deal with the fact that this is a fallen world and yet I was made for glory is the question of every single novel, whether they realize that or not. That's certainly true with the spy who came in from the cold. Mm. Mm. Well, we will uh, remain in the cold next week <laughs> and discuss this book a little bit longer. Um, so please do put, come, you know, post your questions um, on the Instagram page. I'll post a thread there and then also on the Facebook page. And if you prefer to email, you can email us at closereadspods at gmail.com. I wanted to remind people that after that, we are going to be doing Little Britches. And um, Tim's going to shift over to talking about Macbeth and Othello for the next uh, several weeks. But in the meantime, Heidi and I will be talking with Adam Andrews about um, Little Britches. And then I am prepared to make an announcement about our special guest who's going to be joining us for Sense and Sensibility what? after that. So Heidi and I will be discussing Sense and Sensibility starting in May after we finish Little Bridges with Karen Swallow Pryor, the author of <laughs> On Reading Well. So we are really excited about that. Um, she is a great person to talk about literature with. And I think I can't wait. I'm yeah, so excited. I'm going to, I'm going to try to pull it together and not just be like a fan girl on the podcast. I'm going to be super professional. Don't <laughs> even worry about it. Like, <laughs> well, I wasn't worried before, but now I am. <laughs> now you uh, are. <laughs> and then Tim's going to be doing Macbeth and Othello. And these are two of your favorite players, right, Tim? Yeah. I love you them. Could, you kind of begged me to, to do these. I'm, you know, that's kind of I did. I'm, I'm going to put did. it that way because it's it's more interesting than you asked me to. Tim was on. He was on. He pleaded. Figurative. He was pleading. He was on <laughs> figurative hands and knees, begging to do Macbeth. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So there's that, and then um, don't forget about uh, Libromania. This week we have an episode coming on the story behind. Well, I'll just say on one of the most interesting 
uh, literary discoveries of the 20th century. That's all I'm going to say about that. But I've got an interview with a biographer uh, talking about that story uh, next on Lee Romania. Don't forget about Lessons from a Homeschooler from Noah Tetzner. Uh, check out that podcast wherever you get podcasts. And thanks to him for doing that podcast and having me on. And he's uh, going to be promoting Close Reads over there as well. So we're uh, grateful and excited to kind of be sharing some uh, partnership together. I'm, I, he's doing a great, great job. And it's cool to see uh, classically educated uh, homeschoolers and, and young people you know, getting out there and telling their stories and talking about why their education was meaningful. And so if you, you want to hear those sorts of stories, check them out. So, or check that podcast out rather. So with that, I guess that's it. Next week, we will answer your questions. So uh, we will be looking forward to those. And don't forget to vote in our bracket on the, uh, the, the great men of literature bracket, something like that. Great men of March. I don't know. We'll have to figure that out. Something related to the Ides of March, but uh, <laughs> that should be up soon. So for Heidi White, for Tim McIntosh, and for all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast Network, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next week and happy reading as always. Mm-hmm.